Good morning, everyone. First, I'd like to wish all you moms out there a very happy Mother's Day. Hope your children all remembered you and sent something your way. It's the way it's supposed to work. Let's begin by entering into prayer at this time. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for motherhood and that you designed the family as the building block both of the church and of the nation. We thank you, Father, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of a woman, died for our sins on the cross, and you raised him from the dead on the third day so that whoever believes in your Son, Jesus, will never perish, but has eternal life. Father, this morning we particularly want to pray for the Christians in India who are experiencing a terrible, terrible crisis right now because of COVID-19. We would pray for miracles. We would pray for resources that they need and that this, uh, this, this dreaded disease would um, pass and that they would uh, be able to resume their economy and their livelihoods. And we also pray this morning for all the saints and their needs. We thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who guides and directs us in everything and that it has to do with worshiping you and your son. And we just want to thank you for all that in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. I just mentioned in prayer, Christians in India, we have some friends in India, um, Pastor Adams and his family and congregation and widows and orphans. And right now, preachers... Uh, Pastor Adams let me know that um, over 50 preachers in his region have, have died of COVID. That's a lot. Yeah. And over 2,000 Christians. That's a lot. And um, the lepers in the area, if you know um, the culture of India, they have these, this lowest caste of society. And it's called the untouchables. And the, the lepers are the lowest of the low, even there. The Christians are pretty low, but the lepers are the lowest. And, well, they have no food right now. And so they're coming to the churches for food. And the food, the churches are in crisis already. So there's a great need for prayer and, uh, and support. We're doing what we can, and uh, we just hope that this passes quickly. Missionary this month is Mission Aviation Fellowship. I was reading um, about their ministry in the Congo one of the largest nations in, in uh, Africa. It's interesting, I didn't know this, but the Democratic Republic of the Congo has an estimated 242 language groups. 242. Man, when the Lord did his thing at the Tower of Babel, he really did it well, because that's a lot of language groups for one nation. Um, so it's a, very, it's a very beautiful country. It's got mountains, big mountains, 16,000 feet. Rainforests, rivers. Now, because of that, though, it's really hard to get around, you know, especially by road. And so Mission Aviation Fellowship comes along and, of course, has the planes, and they're able to bring resources. They bring a lot of pastors from one location to the other. As a matter of fact, recently they also helped broker a peace deal because they were able to bring the, the two groups together um, to establish peace. They, of course, have a lot of evangelistic activity. There's a lot of... Uh, uh, satanic type worship in that country as there are in many countries. Um, as a matter of fact, there was one um, young man who was at a, at a retreat with, that was sponsored by Mission Aviation Fellowship and 
he came up and asked them afterwards whether it was possible to follow Christ if he'd already made a contract with the dark forces for a talisman to protect him. And of course, the answer is yes. Yes, of course it is. When you believe in Jesus Christ, all that is broken. You know, you died to sin, you died to the law, and you are protected. So that's one of the, that's just a small example of the things that happened. So I ask you also to keep them in prayer, and uh, any support that you're able to give obviously is needed. That's their website again, www.maf.org. All right, let's begin today's message, and to do so, I'd like you please now to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting in verse 22. John, chapter 3, verse 22. We're picking up right where we left off last Sunday. John, chapter 3, verse 22. We're going to see two things today in our passage. The first one is the last testimony of John. John the Baptist has been very prominent so far in in the Gospel of John. But he's going to have his sign-off, his send-off today. And that's the first part of our passage. The second part is really when when the the apostle, the evangelist John, reflects on what he's written all throughout chapter 3. And he draws it to a conclusion in the summary. So those are the two parts we're going to look at today. Let's begin. John chapter 3, verse 22. After these things, those things, of course, were... His, his encounter with Nicodemus, they were, the things that are before this are in Jerusalem. He had the encounter with Nicodemus when he, when he told them that you must be born again. And he was amazed that Nicodemus didn't understand the birth by water and the Spirit. Before that, Jesus had, a, had performed many signs in Jerusalem. He had also, before that, gone into the temple and, and, and threw out all the um, money changers and animal sellers and all of that. That's, that's the things that John refers to now in verse 22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John, was, John also was baptizing. So notice, Jesus was in the land of Judea. He was spending time with his disciples, which I love. You know, some of these are the little things that we learn about Jesus in his life that sometimes we'll pass right over. Well, there's nothing really doctrinal there. But imagine being a disciple, and he's, his priority is just, let's spend some time together. All right, so, and baptizing. And then John also was baptizing in Enon near Selim, because there was much water there. In fact, Enon means springs. Um, and people were coming and were being baptized. This is John now. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore... There arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Now, see, the Jews thought that what John was doing was another form of Jewish purification. And in a sense, it really was. So it went beyond that because he was the forerunner. Remember, water baptism was the way in which he pointed to the coming Messiah and had them prepare for him. And they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi... Now, these are his disciples, perhaps the Jew they were talking with, come to John after their discussion and says, Rabbi, notice the language here. He who was with you beyond the Jordan. Doesn't it say Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, does it? He who was with you beyond the Jordan. In other words, there's a sense of of dismissal almost of Jesus, particularly because they're jealous, as we'll see. They're jealous of the fact that Jesus is now baptizing more disciples than John. John has no problem with this, as we'll see. 
But the disciples had a big problem with it. He who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. We're going to see that the bride here is the believing remnant of Israel. The bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ. The friend is John, who rejoices in the fact that Jesus has begun his public ministry. He's speaking now. He's preaching the gospel. All right. So this joy of mine has been made full. He was at the fullness of his ministry, John. His ministry was completed. He had done what the Lord asked him, what the Father really asked him to do, which is to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah, who would then take it from there and have an incredible ministry. Okay. He must increase. It's his ministry now. I, John, must decrease. He who comes from above. He's going to tell him the difference. Why is it that John has to decrease and Jesus has to increase? It's because of who Jesus is. He who comes from above, the Lord Jesus Christ, is above all. He is, we'll see later, he's been given everything from the Father. He's received that from heaven. He who is of the earth, John the Baptist, is from the earth and speaks of the earth. Notice there's nothing wrong with being from the earth. It's not a negative statement at all. It's just saying that he's smaller. He has a limited scope. All right, his is of the earth, John. is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. He emphasizes that. What he, the one from heaven, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, what he has seen, imagine what he has seen and heard in heaven. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. He's testifying about heavenly things now. And no one receives his testimony. Almost no one. Notice right after that he says that some have. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. That's a magnificent statement. All right, That's saying that everything that God said in the Old Testament about the Messiah coming in his son is true. Because they receive the testimony of Jesus, who is speaking the words of the Father. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent, Jesus, speaks the very words of God. For he, God the Father, gives the Spirit to Jesus without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him, remains on him. All right, chapter 3. There are two main themes. I'm talking about all of chapter 3 now. Remember, we're at the end of chapter 3 in our passage today. We see the last testimony of John about Jesus. And then we see the summing up of chapter 3 in verses 31 to 36. If we look across the whole chapter, there are two powerful, major themes in chapter 3. It's a tremendous support for the mission of this gospel as a whole, which is, remember what? These signs have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in his name. We're going to see this morning that that chapter 3 is all about those two things. What two things? The person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? 
That's a question that you can have as a banner across this whole gospel. And in chapter 3, we get some other answers to that. Who is Jesus? We hear from John the Baptist about who Jesus is. We hear from Jesus himself about who he is. The person of Christ Jesus is a major, perhaps the major theme in chapter 3. There's a second one that really gets introduced in chapter 3. It really, it really became um, to, the, to the surface in verse 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, that's right, believes in him, that's going to turn out to be a tremendously key central thing about the Gospel of John. Believing in him. The purpose at the end, right? So that you may believe, 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 believe. I say that over and over again because, you know, there are people out there who don't teach that. I've said this many times. They teach other things. You have to be baptized. You have to, you have to do penance for all your sins. You have to have, work, have a fruitful life. You have to, have to, have to, have to. Even, even repent and believe. Anything in addition to believe. But this gospel makes it crystal clear. It's just to believe. Believe. The importance of simply believing in Jesus. On the basis, of course, of number one, who he is. Who is he? So we take what he, who he is in the gospel of John, and then we're challenged, everybody. Right? We're Christians, hopefully most of us, all of us. So we've already had that challenge, and we, and we have believed in him. But this gospel is universal. It's for everybody. It's given to believers on behalf of all people. And so, the, so this is a tremendous gospel for evangelism, as I mentioned before. And we can see that clearly here in chapter 3. Who's Jesus? And it's how impo- it's important to believe in him. And last Sunday we learned, remember, the essential difference in verses 20, 19 to 21. The essential difference between the believer... And the unbeliever, when it comes to Jesus, the light of the world. Remember, the unbeliever hates the light because it reveals his guilt. The believer comes to the light because it reveals that his deeds have been produced by God. Now, it's not as if you have to have deeds. A lot of people make that the opposite and say, well, if you have deeds that are pleasing to God, then you become the child of God. No, no, no. It's the other way around. Because you believed in him, you are a child of God. And then the deeds that you produce in God, in, with the power of God are the deeds that are revealed. Okay? But the unbeliever hates the light because he, it reveals his guilt. That's the, that is the thing about unbelievers. All of us started that way. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We had things about our lives that we tried to keep hidden. Now, we probably may still do that, but we're talking about hidden from God. We actually, as unbelievers, have the same attitude that Satan has. Which is that I can hide things from God. I can, I can do things independently of God. That's the plight of every unbeliever. And they don't want the light. See, the light is Jesus coming to the world that enlightens every man. God did not send Jesus into the world to for judge the world, remember? But to save the world. That's the mission. But you see, some, in a sense, they don't want to be saved. They don't want to have to face the gospel in its totality. We're going to talk about that today. About really the two parts of the gospel, the gospel message in the gospel of John. One of them is to, to, for people to have to face the fact, the truth, that they're sinners. And if they don't believe in Christ, there's a judgment. That's a hard message for an unbeliever. By the way, that's a hard message for us to give to the unbeliever. 
We'll talk about that a little more too. So after that commentary that we saw, see John, John presents the, the Jesus Christ, who he is, and then in verses 19 to 21, he has a commentary on it. Okay, so we're going to see that again today. But when we have our verses today, starting in verse 22, you see, John returns to the story, the story about Jesus and the story about Jesus and John. That's the first part of our passage this morning. After these things, notice, verse 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. See, this is a narrative now. This is a story. He's returning to telling us things that happened in the life of Christ. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. There he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Enon and Selim because there was much water there. And people were coming to John and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Which is kind of like, of course, they, if he had been thrown into prison, he couldn't have been baptized by the Jordan. All right? He says, it's interesting, I just throw this as a simple point. He says that here so that people can take what he's presenting as that early ministry of Jesus in Jerusalem and Judea and line it up with the other three Gospels. So that he's saying, listen, you can piece this together and here's a marker of how you can put in what Matthew, Luke, and Mark put in so that when you find, okay... Here's in Mark where Jesus is thrown into prison. And by the way, it's like immediately. So that in the other Gospels, the ministry of Jesus, which for them, they talk about Galilee, right? Not Judea. It begins right at the time when John is thrown into prison. All right. So what do we learn here? Well, we learn one simple thing, and that is that both Jesus and John are baptizing at this time. They're both baptizing. By the way, John's the only gospel that records Jesus baptizing anybody. By the way, we're going to learn in uh, chapter 4 that actually Jesus himself wasn't doing any baptizing. His disciples were. So having completed his work in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples start traveling north to the Judean countryside. That's why it says into the land of Judea. That's just distinguishing the rest of Judea from the capital, Jerusalem. So then, again, both Jesus and John were baptizing at this time. And John 4, please turn there now. John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Because we learned something else about Jesus' baptism, his baptizing, in the, at the beginning of chapter 4. John 4, 2. John 4, 1. We'll get to 2. I want to set this up. Notice what it says here. Therefore, when the Lord knew and the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. What is going on here? Well, you see, see, he, when, the, when the Pharisees learned, he knew there was going to be conflict. He knew that they understood that Jesus was stepping on the stage now, the public stage, and he's baptizing more people than John. So things have happened. Things have moved along. They knew Jesus was in Jerusalem. They, they saw what he did with the, throwing out the animal traders and so forth. So they knew who he was. They said that he was already performing signs in chapter 2. But now, you see, John the Baptist, who the people loved and revered, was now stepping aside and Jesus was coming to the fore. And at the point when he was baptizing 
more, making and baptizing more disciples than John. Notice verse 2, though. Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. In other words, the ministries of John and Jesus overlapped. They they both baptized with water at this time. By the way, they also preached the exact same message. What was that message? It's It's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, the water baptism was, in addition to being a sign to the Jewish people that their Messiah had come, it also represented the change in attitude that needed to be accomplished in the people, the nation of Israel, before the kingdom of heaven could be here on earth. Remember, if the Jews had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, they would have then been, been brought through his death and resurrection, and they would, have, they, would have, they would have been preserved. This will happen in the future now. But back then, preserved during that tribulation period when the Father would deal with all the enemies of Jesus in Jerusalem. And then this kingdom on earth would be established with Jesus as the king. And all peoples of the world would stream to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's been viewed here. The kingdom of heaven on earth is at hand. That was the message at that time that accompanied the baptism baptizing ministries of John and Jesus. All right, go back please now to chapter 3, verse 28. Let's continue on the narrative. Because remember, now we're passing over because we've already read the, the part where his disciples, John's disciples, are really irritated, jealous of the fact that Jesus is now baptizing and people are coming to him. And John had to correct all that. And he's saying, you're missing the boat. A man, a man that's called, like, sent by God, can't receive anything unless God has given it to him from heaven. In other words, all of the disciples that, the, that God gave to John, and that's what it was. God gave them to him in his plan at that time. And then when Jesus came, then really that was the whole purpose of John was to prepare the way so that when Jesus comes, then God gives him all of John's disciples and the new ones that he's making as well. So they needed to understand that. Look at verse 28. John says, you yourselves. He's disappointed with his disciples, especially the ones who were on the scene, and some of them were. When John said, I am not the Christ, the one is coming. I am not fit to unloosen the sandal strap on his sandals. He will come and he will baptize with the Spirit. And he said, listen, you're my witnesses. I said I am not the Christ but that I have been sent ahead of him. You shouldn't be surprised that, that the, behind me comes the Christ. And of course, the Messiah is greater than his herald. Okay. John was sent by God, as Jesus was too, as we'll see. John was sent by God for one reason, to prepare the way for his son, God's son. John was not the Messiah. John was not, that's why he had, when the Messiah was now beginning his public ministry for all to see, represented by water baptism, that was identifying Jesus now with the nation of Israel directly. John had done that already, preparing the way for the Messiah. And now the the, the disciples of Jesus are baptizing to say, here he is. Okay. But John is not the Christ, Jesus is. 
You see, look at John chapter 1, verse 6. Because what happens here in chapter 3 has its uh, beginnings in chapter 1. Chapter 1 is an incredible chapter that that sets the stage for everything that's going to come after it. It's not narrative for the most part. It's Remember, it's telling us the great things about Jesus. That he's the word of God. He's existed forever with God. He's made flesh. He becomes human. Dwelt among the disciples. And so forth. Well, well now, now here in John chapter 123, the parents of John the Baptist. And notice what he says in verse 23. He said, I am simply a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So he's saying, listen, what Isaiah said about the one who would come before the Messiah, by the way, this, is, this appears in the, in the prophet Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament as well. He's saying, that's me. I'm the one who is here to, to make straight the way of the Lord. So when Jesus begins his public ministry and John hears about it, he's ecstatic. Why? Because he knew now that his mission was complete. And he had done his job magnificently. The very fact that, that John, Jesus started baptizing more disciples than John meant that a lot of people understood what John's baptism was all about. That it was partial and that he really came so that the Messiah would be revealed and people would follow him. And that was happening. So John was excited. He knew he'd done his job. Okay. I'll go back to John 3.29, please. John 3.29. Wonderful passage. Wonderfully descriptive. So much in the Gospel of John is is poetic almost. By the way, just like the book of Isaiah that we're studying on Thursday evenings. Isaiah even more so. He's more rich in imagery and so forth. But here we have one. John 3.29. He's explaining more about why it is that he must decrease and Jesus must increase. He says, listen, he who has the bride... okay." He's the bridegroom. That's a very simple concept. But the profound part, of course, is that he's talking about Jesus. And as we'll see, the believing remnant of Israel. Of Israel. That's the bride. For he who has the bride, believing Israel, is the bridegroom. The one who said, I will marry you to the Jewish people in the book of Hosea. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John. He stands and he hears him. He hears the message and he rejoices because of that message, the bridegroom's voice, Jesus' voice. So now notice, this joy of mine has been made full. It doesn't get any better than this. Now I must, he must increase and I must decrease. Okay. By the way, those are the last words recorded in this gospel as being spoken by John. He must increase, but I must decrease. I just mentioned this as well, that the bride is believing Israel. We're not going to go to Hosea chapter 2, but you can write it down. Well, why not? It's not in my notes, but I can't be a slave to my notes. Let's go to Hosea chapter 2 so you can see this yourself. It's kind of important. Hosea 2, 19 to 20. See, one one of the gifts of pastor teachers is that sometimes you turn to the Bible and you get right to the same book you need. Actually, that's just because 
I have some trouble remembering all the little ones. So little, not little, but they call them the minor prophets. I can't remember. I'm getting better, though. Hosea, I know, is the first one after Daniel. All right, Hosea, chapter 2, verse 19. The bride is believing Israel. Notice he, Hosea, chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. I'll give you another couple of minutes to get there. I know that's a, not something we go to all the time. Hosea, chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. All right. Verse, verse 19. By the way, this is the end times he's talking about. Okay? He's talking about when he comes and takes his bride into the kingdom. He says, I, I will be your husband. You will be my bride, no longer my slave. But he's talking about Israel. Notice verse 19. I will betroth you, believing Israel, to me forever. This cannot be the church. You don't know why? Because the church didn't exist in the days of Hosea. Right? Didn't exist. And he's clearly talking to Israel being restored. He says, again, I will betroth you, believing Israel, to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and then you will know the Lord. The bride is believing Israel. All right, let's go back now. John chapter 3, verse 29. I want to explain a couple of other things. I already mentioned this, but seeing it again won't hurt. John chapter 3, verse 29. He who has the bride, believing Israel, is the bridegroom. The bridegroom, of course, is Christ the Lord. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. The friend of the bridegroom is John the Baptist. All right, just so that's crystal clear. I fell John with joy to see Jews coming to Jesus. The fields now were ripe for the harvest. That's what Jesus was here to do, right? To, to reap the harvest of souls, gathering fruit for life eternal. All right, let's continue now in John 3.31. Remember now, after all we've seen in chapter 3, most of which was narrative with some commentary by John, now we're in these last six verses, verses 31 to 36. And this is a great summing up of what he is, the kind of like the meaning behind and the main points behind what John has written in chapter 3. John 3, 31 to 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. Remember, he came into the world and the world didn't recognize its creator. He went to the Jewish people and they rejected him by and large. What he has seen, what he's heard of the heavenly things, he's testifying about those things, never before revealed. And no one receives his testimony. He who has, though, received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent... Now, this is Jesus now. Speaks the words of God. 
For He gives the Spirit, the Father gives the Spirit without measure. In other words, the fullness of the message from God is in the, is in the bosom of Jesus, in the words of Jesus, in the person of Jesus. He gives Jesus the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son. We already saw that the Father loves the world. Now we see that in an incredibly intimate way, the Father loves the Son. And He's given all things into His hand. There's that supremacy of Christ over all things. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, will say the same thing. He has set Him over all things. And we're His body, which is something that's not revealed yet in John. But this is a preview of coming attractions. He has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He repeats himself. By the way, he is going to say this many times in the Gospel of John. Mostly, of course, from the lips of Jesus himself. A few times John's commentary, like at the end, when he says these things, these signs have been written so that you may believe, right, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the very Son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. He says it here too. He says, he who believes in the Son, Jesus, has eternal life. But, but, and this is the part we tend to leave off, but he who does not obey the Son, does not believe in him, will not see that life, that eternal life, that amazing life. But the wrath of God remains on him. We're all born children of wrath. We are born with the wrath of God upon us. We're under the wrath of God. I bet a lot of people don't know that. I bet a lot of people, when those babies are born, they probably don't look at the baby and say, you're really cute, but you need, you're going to need to, well, I'm going to need to understand that. You're under the wrath of God. You see, when you understand that, it motivates you, does it not? It motivates you. You wake up from your slumber and you see the stakes of what it means to be human in the, hand, in the, in the view under a righteous, just, and loving God. He sent his son out of his love. So that we would be rescued from our situation, which was what? Under the wrath of God. God doesn't want anybody to stay there. He wants everybody to believe in his son and have eternal life. He's not willing that any should perish. He sent his son so that he would save the world. Jesus is the light that enlightens every man for one purpose, that they may believe in him and have eternal life. All right, again, I'll mention this. I've mentioned it a couple of times, and now you can see it in print. In these last six verses of chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, the evangelist, John, reflects on all that he has written in chapter 3. It's so important to understand that that's what's happening now. In verse 31, He who comes from above, he's from heaven, is the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. Right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God in heaven, and the Word was God. But then then the Word became flesh. What does that mean? It meant God's Son came down from heaven to earth. And now he's the God-man. Unique person forever. That's what, that's what he's talking about. He's saying, listen, he who, is, he who comes from above, from heaven, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He who is of the earth, that's John the Baptist. So then John is now thinking back. He's thinking back. He's saying, wow, this one is from above I've written that already. I've written the words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. Please go to John chapter 3, verse 11. John chapter 3, verse 11. Again, 31 through 36, 
summing up, commenting on everything that John's written in chapter 3. Bringing back, tying things in together. He had already written something that's very similar to the fact that Jesus is from above and above all, contrasting with he who is of the earth. Look at John chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. See, we've already seen this theme. Notice, this is Jesus now speaking to Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is the truth from God, the Father. We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. What is it that he has seen? What is it that he knows? The heavenly things. Once again, we see the same thing, too. Jesus, John sums up, no one receives his testimony. Jesus to Nicodemus, you do not accept our testimony. Nicodemus was an example of what is now stated generally at the end of chapter 3. And here it is. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, it starts with the earthly things. It starts with the Son of Man and understanding His mission, which was in the Old Testament, that Jesus would be the Messiah who would come and and that there would be a birth of water in the Spirit for the nation of Israel. We saw that in Ezekiel. Those are the things of the earth. He says, listen, if you're not believing those things, how can you possibly believe, notice, if I tell you heavenly things? Because you see, I have seen and I know the heavenly things, Jesus said, because I have been sent from heaven by God to reveal his message to you. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Very simply, Jesus is the only one who has come down from heaven to earth and can talk about it. Has the message from God. He's the only one. He's the only one. Nobody else. So if you, if you, if you see another bestseller on Christian you know, media, and they say, oh, another one has died and gone to heaven, has come back to tell us about it. You can say, that is a blasphemy. Why? Because my Bible says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's the only one who has seen and heard the glories of heaven. He came to his people, the Jews, with his testimony about the earthly things and the heavenly things. And by and large, his special people rejected his testimony. Think about that. Think about the horror, really, or, or the disconnect. or the, how, how do you want to say it? But he selected a, a, a specific nation. He created a nation from the loins of Abraham. He created a new people, the Hebrews. He rescued them out of Egypt. He set them in their own land. He gave them the greatest king, David, in the Old Testament. He gave that so that he could, they, could, they could flourish and have military um, defense and all that. He gave that to them. He waited 450 years. Well, they never, they never practiced the Sabbath. Again and again, they were turning from him, turning from him. Again and again. But they were his special people. And he continued because what did he do? He fulfilled a promise in the prophets that from them would come the Messiah, the Savior. And he fulfilled that. And yet, when the Messiah, who knew the Father, who knew the heavenly things, came and was among them, they rejected him in every possible way. His person and his message. By and large, they rejected his testimony. What was his testimony? The heavenly things that he saw and that he heard. The heavenly things that he saw, imagine that he heard. 
A lot of people wonder, okay, what is heaven like? What's God like? And the answer is, look at Jesus and listen to Jesus and you will learn. He talked, he's already talked about some heavenly things. He's talked about eternal life. That's a heavenly thing. That's a heavenly, that's not, he's not talking about earthly life. He's talking about heavenly life now. Eternal life, the life of God, a special quality of life. He's talking about the Spirit who is in heaven. In the Gospel of John, he's going to reveal things about the Holy Spirit as well. He already has. You know, he's revealed that unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. He's already, we already been told that John said, listen, the way you, Jesus, whoa, the Lord said to John, the Baptist, the way you're going to recognize the Messiah is that the Spirit will come and remain on him. And then the light, which we saw already, of course, in chapter one, right? The light was the life of men and it came into the world and is the, it enlightened every man. All right. So in verse 319, he talks about the light again. These are the heavenly things, some of them that he talked about. Verse 33. He who has received his testimony. Now see, see, see the picture now. We have Jesus preaching. Jesus testifying about he's the son of man. He's the son of God. God's his father. God sent him not to condemn the world, but to save it. The Holy Spirit is upon Jesus. Okay, all of these heavenly things he's testifying about. He's open about it. He who has received his testimony, only a small, only a minority. You know, that's the message, of course, of the whole Bible concerning God and his people. At any point in time in the Old Testament, only a minority of the Jews believed in the Lord. That was true from the very beginning. From the very beginning, when this nation was formed, when Moses led them out of Egypt, he brought them out, and everybody celebrated the deliverance. But soon you found out that most of them didn't believe. They were grumbling. They wanted to turn back to Egypt. They built their own false god. Okay? As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us at the end of the Torah that only a small number of them was going to come in, and it won't be the first generation. It'll be the kids. <laughs> It'll be the kids. Again and again and again, we see a small remnant. Right? Elijah, he thought he was the only one. And Jesus says, don't worry, I got, about, I, got some, I got a few thousand for you. Out of what? Maybe five million in the nation? Same thing when Jesus comes. Same thing with Jesus. Oh, they were all excited about the miracle worker, remember? But they weren't very excited about his message. Especially when, again, they understood that he is the Savior. Remember when he talks, and I hope you're reading the Gospel of John, because I will make reference to other parts of it as we go through, because remember, it's a symphony. They're all interconnected. He talks about the fact, listen, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Ooh, that's a hard statement. And they started leaving, right? So they're, so they're only minority, all right? By the way, that is true today, unfortunately, right? Even among those who are in, quote, Christendom, they used to call it that. It's probably, that's totally lost its relevance, you know, because there's more, there's more mosques in England, England today than there are churches, for example. And we're headed the same way. Smaller percentage of the nation now goes to church than ever, almost, except during the Depression. Always a minority. Always, a, that's why the word remnant is so important a word in the prophet's and the concept even now. 
right? Jesus said, listen, the world's going to hate you. <laughs> that's, the, that's most people. Why? Because they hated me. Most people. All right. It's one of those sobering things that the Bible tells us again and again and again. The last times, difficult times will come, right? Men, by and large, who will be lovers of money, lovers of self, disobedient, so forth. That's the majority. That's the large majority. Jesus says, listen, when I come back after the tribulation period, will there be any faith on earth? That is not, he's not saying the majority, is he? He's saying a small minority. I hope that's both a challenge and a comfort to all of us this morning. The challenge being that there are people who are going to believe, but we've got to be able to hang in there and persevere because a lot of people aren't. Don't let that discourage you. Okay? And, and that's the comfort. The comfort is, is that it's, that's the way it is. There's nothing wrong with you. I know a lot of people um, get, get insecure and feel guilty when they're, when they're preaching to their families or their friends or their neighbors and nothing happens. They're not, these people are not believing. And you think, I was having a conversation this week, actually, with, with a young lady who said exactly that. What am I doing wrong? What's the magic message that I need to give these people? I said, there's no magic message. There's the simple message of the gospel that God sent his son, his son, God-man, went to the cross to die for the sins of the world, including this person you're talking to, was buried and was raised from the dead on the third day. That's the message. That's the message. Anything else, okay, don't, you don't come up with it. Oh, if I'm just clever enough or I can argue with them about evolution. No, that's not, that's not going to work. Maybe nothing will work. But the only thing that works is the power of God's word. So the more of God's word that you speak with the unbeliever, the more power is directed towards them, along with the Holy Spirit, who is doing this convicting, by the way. We'll see that. Hope you've already seen that in the Gospel of John, chapter 16. He's convicting everyone. Jesus is the light that enlightens every man. Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin. You're sinners. Of righteousness. That's the standard that none of us can, can live up to. And judgment. If something doesn't happen, there's going to be a judgment. Now, if, if unbelievers hear that message, that's, that is like an open door, right? If somebody really understands finally, yes, I am a sinner. Yes, there is a standard of righteousness that God himself upholds and requires. And, and by those first two, you realize, I don't meet that standard. Never have, never will. And now you're telling me that there's a judgment for whoever can't meet the standard? That's me. I'm in big trouble. You see, I'm in big trouble is the, is the prelude to believing in Christ. Because they're ready. They understand, I need a miracle. I need a Savior. Only God can save me now. And then you just tell them, guess what? God has sent the Son into the world to save the world. To save you. And it's simply a matter of listening to who he is and what he has done to be, to be your savior and believing it. And I don't know about you, but when I had reached that point, when I understood I was a sinner, and I understood that God was righteous, and I understood there was a, a judgment, I was ecstatic to hear the simplicity of the gospel. You mean it's no longer that I have to do all these things? I have to repent of my sins? I have to make, do I have to make restitution? Do I have to be in church every day? Do I have to go to the confessional box every day? Believe me, I tried all of that. Okay? But I knew none of that could work. <laughs> and I was left pretty much Christ 
or end it. Now you might say that's a little severe. Yeah, but you see the, the issues, the stakes involved with the gospel are serious. They're not frivolous. That's why sometimes I think that the church has totally lost its way when it tries to make, it, make this seeker-friendly, the message. That it's all about having fun and, you know, and all of that. There's a place for that. You know what the place for that is? After you're a believer in Christ. That is not the message to the unbeliever. All right. John chapter 3, verse 33 again. Boy, I'll tell you what. I get talking and I can't find my way back. Oh, there's the way back. I know if I'm really lost, all I have to do is realize one thing. What? Jesus is the way. (laughs) If I just start talking about him, that's the whole gospel, then I'll click back into, oh, okay, we're in chapter 3, verse 33. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. Everything that God says is true. That's somewhere we all have to get to with the word of God. Don't, don't, no longer play with it or think of that. Well, I, I'm going to figure out the word of God. I'm going to come up with a system. I'm going to come up with my ability to understand it all. You're never going to do that. You want to know why? You got it backwards. You're not supposed to figure out the word of God. The word of God is supposed to figure out you. Yeah. yeah, that's what it does. That's why we preach the word of God. So that it hits you. And it says, ah. By the way, it's, both, it's always both a challenge and a comfort. We're studying the prophet Isaiah. And we're seeing that his, his prophetic messages almost always start with judgment. And then they lead into blessing. Okay, That happens to be the pattern. Okay, That happens over and over again. In any event. He who receives his testimony is the one who believes in him. Let's say that again. I'll put it up there. The one who receives his testimony is the one who believes in him. That's what it means to receive his testimony. That's the testimony we have, right? When we preach the gospel and somebody believes it, right? They've received the message loud and clear and they believed it. All right, let's take a look at the same principle in the gospel of John chapter 17. To me, of all the chapters in the four Gospels, this is the most glorious. How could it not be? Do you realize what chapter 17 is about? Chapter 17 is Jesus the night before he's going to the cross to do the will of the Father with praying with the Father now, a whole chapter. We talk about the Lord's Prayer. This is the Lord's Prayer. A couple of, a couple of verses on it. John 17, 7, talking to the Father. Jesus talking to the Father. Now they have come to know his disciples, the one who received, the ones who received his testimony, the ones who believed in him. John 17, verse 7. Now they have come to know, Father, that everything you have given me is from you. In John 3, we just saw the passage that says he has given all things into his hand. And so everything that you have given me is from you for the words. Notice the importance of the words. We can think about, wow, what are all the things that the Father gave to the Son? And of course, there are tremendous things. He gave him the Spirit. He gave him all his disciples. What's the most amazing thing? The very words of God. The, the, the unique message that only somebody who came from heaven could deliver. That's what he's talking about. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. 
And they received them. Notice, these are the ones that received those words, the testimony, and truly understood. That's what happens when you receive, you believe. You start to understand. I came forth from you. Anybody who comes to the realization, and there's a God in heaven, and he's totally righteous and powerful and loving, and that this son came forth from him, this Jesus in the Bible came directly from God, and they believed that you sent me. See, to receive the message, the testimony, is to believe in him. The one who receives the testimony is the one who believes in Christ. Now, verses 34 to 36. Let's go back there. We're finishing up, right? We're in the last three verses of chapter 3. The second part of of John summing up the chapter for us. Okay, Look at verses 34 to 36 and we'll see a little bit more about what's here. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Like we just saw in John 17, 8, right? The words which you gave me, I have given to them. He says the same thing back here in verse 34, chapter 3. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Notice that connection between the words of God and the Spirit. It's a connection, by the way, which is made in the Old Testament that the prophets had an anointing from the Spirit to speak what they were going to say. John the Baptist, the same thing. Of Jesus, of course, in his humanity. Right? The Holy Spirit was given to him in all of the fullness of what's available without measure. He gives the Spirit without measure to his Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. That's how much love he has for his Son. And then we have verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides in him. That word obey in the Greek, by the way, half of the time it means obey. Half the time it means um, believe. Right? Unbelief would be not obeying. But the wrath of God remains on him. So here we have in verses 34 to 36, summary of the main points of chapter 3. And then right here, though, he introduces a new theme. And it's a tremendous theme. It is the fact, whoops, I went the wrong way. The relationship between the father and the son. I mean, I mean we just saw kind of the ultimate in chapter 17, right? Where they're talking, where he's talking to his father. But throughout the Gospel of John, it's why he's called the Son of God, is because he has a relationship with his Father, and he reveals that again and again and again in the Gospel of John. And he starts here, pretty much. All right, verse 34, He whom God sent, the Father sends the Son. Think of it, the Father sends the Son. Please turn to John chapter 3, 17. We'll see some things about this relationship between the Father and the Son. They are, of course, one in the the sense that they're they're both God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What an incredible construction, by the way, that statement is in John chapter 1. It's perfect. Why? In the beginning was the Word. 
The word always was. The word was with God. So there's God in the word and the word was God. It's a tremendous description of what we call, sometimes call the Trinity. Right? One God, three persons. Verse 317. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world. He sent the Son into the world. And he didn't do it to judge the world. There's so many lie about. But that the world might be saved through him. The world might be saved. Why did God, what was his motivation in sending his only son? So that the world, every human being, might be saved through the son. Okay, back in verse 34, chapter 3. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. What is this telling about the relationship between the son and the father? Very simply, the son speaks the words of the father. This is very much an understanding, the reason why it's so powerful, okay, is because this really is the ultimate relationship, right, in heaven between the Father and the Son. And yet at the same time, he has kind of set a mini version of that in the way things ought to be with human fathers and human sons, right? The Son speaks the words of the Father. By the way, not the other way around, right? doesn't say the Father speaks the words of the Son. The Son speaks the words of the Father. He whom God has sent speaks the words of God. Let's see it in another passage in John. John chapter 12, verse 49. I hold you a place in chapter 3. We'll be right back in a couple of minutes. But please go to John chapter 12, verse 49. There is an order in the Godhead. There's a union and an order. It's an incredible thing. It's the kind of thing when you say, wait a minute, if and since the Son of God submits to the will of the Father, and He is God, right, who are we to reject the authorities and the orders that God has set up for us? You see it? Who are children to rebel against their Father when Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, Submitted perfectly to the will of his father. Am I on? All right. Thank you, Jack. A lot of pressure, you know. 
Everyone's waiting. They're like, yeah, he's finishing up, but man, he's going to go a little late if that battery doesn't get in there soon. All right. I'm just saying now, remember where we're at, the father and the son, that incredible relationship. I'm not going to forget, ladies, the point, which is that if there's order in, in the Godhead, who are we to reject the order that God has, the order is the authorities, the roles that God has set up for us. And again, that does include the ladies. God has ordained that there's an order. Now, don't get me wrong, especially in Christ, there is no male and female in Christ. So ultimately, we're all members of the body. And yet, in carrying out the mission that the Lord has given the family, he has set an order in place. The father and the mother are here, equal when it comes to the children. However, the, fa- the husband is over the wife. Sorry, ladies, but that's the way God set it up. All right. Woo! If this gets out, I'm history. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, it's counter. Isn't it counter to everything that we're seeing now, though? It's unbelievable. That's why it's so important. If we, want, if we want to really understand why we've been created, we really need to understand the words of God and how they apply to us. Okay. All right, John twelve forty nine. We see again this submission of the Son to the Father. Are you there? Did I send you there, John? Okay, good. For I did not speak on my own initiative. He didn't say one word on his own initiative. Think about that. What? But the Father himself who sent me has given me a notice, this a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. The Father told him what to say and what to speak. It was a commandment. Let me say this again. Therefore, who are we to ignore the commandments from God in our life? The most important one of which is Jesus that said, love one another as I have loved you. That's our great commandment, by the way, for the church, the new one. And then, of course, the Father loves the Son. Please turn to John chapter 5, verse 20. The Father loves the Son. Again, what are we looking at? We're looking at this relationship between the Father and the Son. It's a heavenly thing. And Jesus is revealing this in the Gospel of John in many tremendous ways. We've seen three of them today. Please go to John 5.20. We've seen that the Father sends the Son. The Son speaks only the words of the Father. And here we see that the Father loves the Son. Who wouldn't? What Father wouldn't? Well, we love our sons anyway. But imagine the kind of love you have when the Son only lines up completely with your will. I don't know if that's ever happened in the human race. But imagine how wonderful it would be. Can you sense it? Can you sense it, men? For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And the Father has given all things into his hand. Okay, finally we get to verse 36. Back to John chapter 3, verse 36, as we close this morning. John 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has now eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him now. Now. Okay. Verse 36 restates verses 16 and 18. All right. Take a peek at verses 16 and 18. 
36, I'll say it a couple times more, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's the same statement again that we see in verse 36. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him, notice, is not judged. But here's the part that gets repeated in verse 36. But he who does not believe has been what? Judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. When we witness to unbelievers, we need to tell them the whole story. The whole story. Our natural tendency as human beings is to emphasize the good stuff, right? That's our tendency. So what happens in the gospel is we emphasize eternal life. And that's fantastic, and it's tremendous, and it really is, and it ought to be emphasized. The problem is, is that most people, when they preach the gospel, leave out the wrath of God. In other words, they leave out the real motivation to preach it. Our motivation, okay, is like God's, which is to save people, okay? What's our motivation? We know what what we're saving them from, okay? We're not saving them, but we're preaching the gospel. The power of the word of God saves them, all right? So that is part of it. We can't leave that out. We can't leave out the wrath of God. And by the way, it is a sign of integrity and maturity to emphasize both eternal life and the wrath of God when we preach the gospel. Eternal life is the present possession of the believer. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. Unfortunately, the wrath of God is a present reality too for the unbeliever. We were all born under the wrath of God. The unbelievers remained there, and he will remain there unless or until he believes the testimony of the Son. He believes the gospel. Make no mistake, the wrath of God is real. It's a fearful, dreadful thing. If you don't believe me, read Revelation chapters 14 through 16. You'll get the idea. I wish it on nobody. Not Adolf Hitler, not Stalin, not anybody. God didn't either. He sent the Son so that the whole world would be saved. We need to warn people. We need to warn people. That's the integrity and the maturity I'm talking about. Okay, and summing up, again, the two great questions of chapter 3. Who is Jesus? Which, by the way, is a question that's the overarching question of the Gospel of John. And then, the specific thing that we've seen as well, why is it important for me to believe in him? These are the two questions. Two questions that the unbeliever actually has a right to know, right? Who's Jesus? Who is it that I'm believing in? And then, why is it important for me to believe in him? Well, here's who Jesus is. Jesus is God's beloved son. That's why it's important to believe in him. He's above all. Jesus is the savior of the whole world, including you. 
That's why it's important to believe in him. God sent his son from heaven into the world to save the world, including you. And Jesus is the perfect witness for this whole thing, the whole message. By the way, he embodies the witness, doesn't he? It's the messages about him that he died for our sins and was buried and was raised again on the third day. When he speaks, he speaks the words of the Father. That's a perfect message. He's the perfect witness. He speaks the words his Father gave him. That's why the Father has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in Jesus, God's Son, has eternal life. It's a quality of life that the believer has now. God's life. Whoever does not believe remains under God's wrath. That's a quality of death. I speak this morning to any unbelievers who are hearing this message now or in the future. Do you believe in God's Son? The one that is depicted in the Gospel of John in chapter 3. The Son of God. The Savior of the world. Your Savior. The perfect witness. Do you believe in God's Son? Because your answer to that question will determine your ultimate destiny. Will your ultimate destiny be abundant life or unrelenting wrath? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again today for leveling with us. As you, as you re- reveal the most incredible, glorious things about your Son. Every reason in the world to believe in him. And yet you also reveal the stakes involved in preaching the gospel. That there are two destinations. There are two destinies of man. For those who believe in Christ, it's eternal, perfect life. For those who do not believe in Christ, it's wrath. Thank you, Father. And help us, help that to marinate in our hearts today. And, and, and we all need this. We all need to be, be, have this illuminated, understood, and to change our approach to the gospel when we preach it. And we know that only by the Spirit does that happen. And we know that you've given us the Spirit too. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, just a couple of reminders now. Do this every week, but we need reminders. The older I get, the more reminding I need. Bible studies Thursday. We have it on Skype so that everybody can access it. All right. It's at 6.30, next one this Thursday, May 13th, the, the, the incredible prophecies of Isaiah. We have a weekly prayer meeting right after that, right on Skype on Thursdays. We have a, a website, the very first page, you can see how to give us prayer requests. And we welcome them. All right. One other thing, um, from time to time I will mention this, um, we don't have... We don't pass around the basket for money. We don't do, the only time we do that is when we have a visiting evangelist. Okay. We don't believe in tithing because the New Testament doesn't believe in tithing. Okay. The idea of giving for the saints, the members of the body of Christ, is out of gratitude and a desire to want to see the words of God preached both to the unbeliever and the believer. And so when you, when you, if you have that in your heart and you have an opportunity with your finances, then you will do something to support that mission, okay? And also take care of one another. That's an important part too, all right? That's interesting because you, <laughs> I don't want to pick on it, but there's, of course, a lot of televangelists and important people out there, and they will leave that out 
They will, they will beg for your money, but they won't say, you know what? You don't have to give it all to me. You shouldn't give it all to me. You should take care of one another. That was the first use of the offering, by the way. If you read in 1 Corinthians, you'll see. And the 2 Corinthians, that they were gathering an offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Don't leave that out. All right. If you have any questions about the message today or about the Bible generally, by the way, that's our website. Ooh, I'm going ahead of myself. Wait a minute. There it is. That's our website, lbible.org. It's really simple. If you have any questions, you can email me anytime. It may take me a little while. Good morning, Margie. Um, what? I'm getting a sign. <laughs> All right. It's a beautiful picture. Ah, and there it is. How long has that been up there? Okay, good. Not the whole message, right? <laughs> All right, that's my email. Got any questions? Email them to me. Might take me a while, right, Margie? To get back to you, but I will eventually, unless the rapture happens, and then you won't need the answer anymore. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to hear the word of God. Thank you for the opportunity to be together. We ask again today, Father, for the, on behalf of the saints in India and the t- desperate situation that they have now because of the COVID virus, we just pray, Father, that you would deliver them, both in terms of their financial situation as well as their health and their ability to take care of one another. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray to you. Amen. All right, that's it. You're dismissed.